Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Jeremiah 13. There are certain phrases that have just moved into our English lexicon, just biblical phrases that we all sort of know. It's just all part of our society and the way we've been raised. We know things like, uh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Even people who don't know the Bible know that. Jeremiah 13 includes one of those phrases, can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? What we're going to find out tonight is that contextually the answer is uh, no. And yet I remember years ago hearing a free will advocate say from the pulpit, he was preaching that text, and by the time he got done, the answer was essentially yes. You have the free will to change your spots and change your skin, apparently. But what you're going to see contextually is that Jeremiah says, that's an impossibility. So here yet again, we're going to see verification, even from the Old Testament, of man's complete inability. You are what you are. You can't change that. And Jeremiah is going to say so plainly. In fact, he's going to say, if an Ethiopian can change his skin, if a leopard can change his spots, then you can also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So that's everything we know about human inability because we are evil, because we are depraved, because of our fallen flesh. We can't do good unless God makes a change in us. So Jeremiah 13 is going to start with basically a visual aid. God has moved on from just proclaiming these things to actually working through visual aids, which he does occasionally through his prophets. You might recall that Jeremiah did several of these kind of things. You might recall that Ezekiel did several of these kind of things to get people's attention. And then in case the visual aid doesn't work, he's also going to include a parable to get people's interest, to get them thinking, to get them paying attention. And then finally, Jeremiah is just going to declare plainly that God is about to bring darkness upon them. Now, the other thing about Jeremiah 13 is that there's actually a time stamp in it. And it's a very helpful time stamp, but it's going to also cause us to go back and spend some time in uh, Second Kings. So we'll do that later this evening. So we've got a long way to go. Chapter 13, verse 1, thus the Lord said to me, go buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So buy a linen waistband. Linen was the material that was very specific to the priests. And so anybody who saw him buy and wear a linen belt, something you would tie around your waist, Anybody who saw him do that would realize that he was 
either mocking or representing the priests of Israel. So I bought a waistband in accordance with the word of Yahweh, and I put it around my waist. And then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the crevice of the rock. Now, there's a little bit of problem with the NASB translation. You might have a different translation of the word Euphrates there. We're talking about a Hebrew word that is basically three letters, which can be Euphrates, but it can also be Parat. And in fact, there was actually a place, a village called Parah, about three miles northeast of Anathoth, Anathoth being the hometown of Jeremiah, right there in the tribe of Benjamin. And so the reason that some translators lean toward the idea of it being Parah rather than the Euphrates is that the Euphrates River would be about a 700-mile round trip on foot. And not only did Jeremiah go hide the waistband, but then in a little while, God's going to say, okay, now go get it. So that's a couple of 700-mile round-trip journeys by foot that Jeremiah would have taken. So I lean toward the idea that it is the crevices of the rock in Parah. And actually... In Arab-speaking countries, there's something that's known as a wadi, which is basically a valley or a ravine. And in that area of Parah, there is exactly a deep wadi, which is dry and full of crevices and rocks, very like what God has described for Jeremiah to do here. So I lean toward the Parah translation. By the way, The Hebrew lettering for Parah and the Hebrew lettering for Euphrates is identical. There are no vowels, and so those three letters could be referring to either one. So I bought a waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist. And then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, Take the waistband that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to Parah and hide it there in the crevice of the rock. So I went and I hid it by Parah as the Lord had commanded me. And it came about after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise and go to Parah and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to Parah and I dug And I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, Just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. There's that often mentioned sin again, that sin of pride that arrogance of the people of Judah and Jerusalem that caused them to go chase after other gods or feel like they were sufficient without doing the law of God. And so in verse 10, he says, This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words 
will walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, and they have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. Let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they did not listen. So the same way that the belt, as long as it was worn by Jeremiah, was fine, because Jeremiah would protect it, Jeremiah would clean it, he would preserve it. But as soon as it was put in the dirt, God made sure that it completely corrupted and became worthless. God then draws the connection and says that the house of Israel and the house of Judah was supposed to cling to me the same way that that belt would cling to Jeremiah. But the fact that they chased after other gods, the fact that they went away from God is why God is going to make them worthless. But look at the purpose for which once upon a time God took the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah. The reason was so that they would be for me a people. So that they would be for me out of all the humans on planet Earth. They would be my people. They would be my distinct people, my separate people for renown, so that I would get fame, so that the other peoples of the earth would know about me and about my law and about my authority and power for praise, so that they would worship me. I created them, I called them to myself for the purpose of my own praise and for glory. That's the reason that I made them, drew them to myself, gave them my law, sent them my prophets, and they did not listen. So having given them that visual aid, he then turns to a parable, again, just to engage them, to get them thinking. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Every jug, some of your translations might say wineskin. I think jug is a better translation because in a moment he's going to crash them all together so that they crack, and you can't do that with animal wineskins. Therefore, you are to speak this word to them. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. And that's just logical. That just makes sense. If you have a particular piece of pottery or a wineskin, the purpose of that is to have wine in it. And so God says every jug is to be filled with wine. And there is an implication here that that was just a Hebraism, that that was something that the people, kind of like a chicken in every pot, that you would have wine in every wineskin. That was a sign of their well-being, the fact that they were in a land of milk and honey and that the wine was overflowing. Every jug is to be filled with wine. And so when they say to you, do we not know very well that every jug is to be filled with wine? So Jeremiah is saying something they're familiar with is the point. So God is repeating to them something that they themselves would say as a designation of how well-to-do they were. Yeah, yeah, Jeremiah, you're not telling us anything new. Do we not very well know 
that every jug is to be filled with wine. And then you'll say to them, thus says Yahweh the Lord, behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. I'm going to fill you all with so much wine that you're going to be stupid drunk, and I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. And I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, that I should not destroy them. So God gave them two examples. He gave them the sash, the priest's sash, that was destroyed so that God could say, I'm going to destroy you. You should have clung to me. You didn't. I'm going to destroy you like this belt. And then he gave them the parable that every jug should be full of wine. That's something that they already know. It's a phrase that they know because when Jeremiah said it to them, God said they're going to say, yeah, I know. I know that phrase. I'm familiar with that concept, that idea. So then you tell them, God said that all of you are the vessels that I'm going to fill with drunkenness. And then I'm going to destroy you. You're going to be so insane, so like a drunk person, that you're going to fight against each other. Fathers and sons are going to fight against each other. They're going to fight together. But I'm not going to show any pity. I'm not going to be sorry. I'm not going to show compassion. I'm utterly going to destroy them. Now, I can't pass by this particular section without a little theological aside. This has nothing to do with Jeremiah outside of the statement that's made right here about David's throne. Notice that God himself makes reference to the succession of kings that sit for David on his throne. So where is David's throne? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Did it change when we get to the New Testament? When the promises are that David's greater son is going to sit on his own throne when he was going to be born and the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and told her that this was going to be the descendant of David. He was going to sit on David's throne. Did David's throne change? Because there is a very common theology and eschatology out there that says that David's throne is now somehow in heaven and that Jesus sitting on the right hand of God is the fulfillment of that promise that Jesus would sit on David's throne. But here, God himself identified where David's throne is, and he said that the succession of kings after David, David's sons, actually were sitting on David's physical throne in Jerusalem, meaning that unless the definition of David's throne has changed somewhere, which the Bible does not say it has, then Jesus has to sit on that same throne in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? That's just letting the Bible interpret the Bible. And so the definition for David's throne already exists. It's already here in this text. It's already defined for us. So everybody who is coming up with the theological novelty that David's throne is now the throne in heaven where Christ sits can't find that anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, our contention that David's throne has to be a physical throne in Jerusalem that Jesus sits on is actually supported by the biblical text. 
Okay, theological aside now out of the way, we can return to the text. Starting at verse 15, Jeremiah starts speaking. Now that God has revealed to him both this visual aid and this parable, he is now talking to the people and saying, listen and give heed. Do not be haughty. God has just identified them as prideful, stubborn people. And so he says, don't be prideful. Don't be egocentric. Don't be haughty, for Yahweh has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God. That is why I took the time a moment ago to say that God defines the reason that he made Israel and Judah was for his own renown, for his own praise, and for his own glory. And then he said, but they didn't listen to me, and they're not doing it. So Jeremiah's directive to them is, do the thing you were made for. God created you and chose you as a people, revealed himself to you for his own glory. So give glory to Yahweh, your God, before he brings darkness. And before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains, and while you are hoping for light, he makes it into a deep darkness and turns it into gloom. Okay, so that language is representative language, but it's not hard to decipher. God is about to bring the Chaldeans, the army of the Babylonians, down on Jerusalem. And they're going to, in their confusion, in their drunkenness, they're going to fight even each other. And then they're going to become so impoverished that, as we saw in previous weeks, they're going to eat their own children out of desperation. It's going to get dark. It's going to get gloomy. And so Jeremiah gives them one last warning. Listen and take heed. Don't be haughty. Give glory to the Lord before he brings this darkness. It's coming, I'm telling you. God has already revealed it to me. I'm telling you that he is going to bring this deep gloom on you. If you were wise at all, you would turn away from your haughtiness and your pride, and you would run to God. That, by the way, seems like a warning that we all, here in America, could certainly use these days. Forget your pride, forget your haughtiness, and run to God, because God is going to judge. Verse 17, but if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. So you're going to be taken into captivity, and I will weep and I will mourn over you because I told you. I warned you. God even took the time to send you prophets, not only Jeremiah, but then later Ezekiel. There were so many prophets who, at this moment in time, are predicting what's about to happen, and they wouldn't listen, and they wouldn't hear it. And Jeremiah weeps over the destruction and the darkness and the scattering of the flock of the Lord as they are taken captive. So now verse 18 includes the time stamp that I mentioned earlier. Because Jeremiah is going to make reference to the king 
and the queen mother. Say to the king and say to the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. Humble yourselves. Get down off your throne. Take that crown off your head. Get down on your face before God. You're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to be the shepherd. Now, what king and what queen mother is he talking about? He's probably, given the fact that his prophetic ministry starts in the time of Josiah, at this point, he's probably talking about Jehoiakim, who's also known as Jeconiah whose queen mother was Nahashta, who was the widow of Jehoiakim. For instance, just turn a couple chapters forward. Jeremiah 29, and we're just going to read the first two verses of Jeremiah 29. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 2, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. Okay, so now he's given us another clue. He knows full well that this king, Jeconiah, went out to meet the king of Babylon, and then he and his mother and all the court officials were then taken away from Jerusalem and taken into captivity. So with that in mind, let's look at a little bit of the history so that we get some sense of where this prophecy in chapter 13 of Jeremiah actually fits in the big timeline since we know that Jeremiah prophesied during a succession of kings starting at King Josiah. To do that, turn to 2 Kings 24, and we're going to start reading actually in chapter 23. You know that Josiah was a good king. You know that Josiah burned down the ashram and the groves and smashed the altars reinstituted the Passover. He was a good king. But in 1 Kings 23, starting at verse 28, we read, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, they're written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo, so that's the way that Josiah died. And his servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, his son, the son of Josiah, and appointed him and made him king in the place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned a whole three months in Jerusalem. There's a successful reign right there, three whole months. His mother's name was Hamatul, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, 
that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho, demonstrating this phenomenal power that he had over Jerusalem and its kings, he's killing and replacing kings and taxing them mightily. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation to give to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now chapter 24, verse 1, and in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Just like Jeremiah had warned them, the Chaldeans actually did come down on them. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight, exactly like we just read in Jeremiah, to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land again. There's been a huge power shift in the Middle East. Up until now, the pharaohs, Necho in particular, had been ruling over Jerusalem and most of that Middle Eastern territory, even supplanting and replacing kings. But now the king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So now this power shift has turned toward Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, The servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to meet the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. 
That's exactly what we just read in Jeremiah 29, that Jeremiah sent a letter to the captives in Babylon after this event had taken place. Jehoiakim, rather than defending Jerusalem, went out to try to make some bargain with the king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. And then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest in the land. You know who else was in that deportation? Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 15. So he, that being the king of Babylon, he led Jehoiakim away in exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land, he led away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the great men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen, and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these, the king of Babylon, brought into exile to Babylon. Okay, so there is the story of Jehoiakim and his mother going out to meet the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and then going into captivity. That seems to be what Jeremiah is referring to here. That was all just background and giving us some sense of when these particular prophecies are being handed out because we know that particular moment and that beginning of captivity is 597 B.C. after his reign of just three months according to 2 Kings 24.8. So this prophecy would have been penned During that three-month period, Jeremiah is telling them to humble themselves before this all happens. So, Jeremiah called on the king and his queen mother to come down from their thrones in humility because their crowns would soon fall off when Nebuchadnezzar removed them from their office. Verse 18 of Jeremiah 13. Have I lost anybody yet? Okay. Say to the king and to the queen mother, take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev have been locked up, and there is no one to open them. All Judah has been carried into exile, wholly, completely carried into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those coming from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you? Where are your beautiful sheep? That's why a moment ago I said the king was supposed to be the shepherd of Israel and Judah. He was supposed to be leading them appropriately. And God refers to those people that were given to the king of Judah 
as his flock, as his sheep. And now they're all being carried away into exile. And so Jeremiah is asking prophetically, before it even happens, telling the king and the queen mother that they're going to be taken down off their thrones, that their crowns are going to be removed from them, that their people, their flocks are going to be carried into exile. And when they look up and look around, they're all going to be taken from them. Where is the flock that was given to you? Where are your beautiful sheep? What will you say when he appoints over you and you yourself have taught them former companions to be head over you. In other words, you at one time were a king that taught captains, that taught generals. Everybody did obeisance to you. But God is going to take you so low that those people who you were responsible for, who you put into powerful positions, who you did the teaching and instructed them on what your desires were. They're going to be rulers over you. How are you going to deal with that? You're going to be brought down low, and they are going to rule over you. What will you say when he appoints over you, when God appoints over you, and you yourself had taught them, former companions, to be head over you? Will not pangs take hold on you? like a woman in childbirth. And if you say in your heart, why have these things happened to me? It is because of the multitude of your iniquity. Your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. In a moment, God is going to again go back to that same language of they have committed harlotries in the way they have chased after foreigners, the way they have chased after other gods. And so God is saying, I'm going to strip you naked. I'm going to demonstrate your shame. When you go into captivity and people realize that I delivered you into this captivity, it's going to be such a shame to you. It's going to be like having your harlotries exposed for the world to see. And I'm going to take your skirts off you. I'm going to expose your bare legs. Your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. And then he asked the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. This is fascinating to me from a theological standpoint. God has just made the definitive statement that those who are evil cannot do good. And yet, he sends prophets like Jeremiah who go and say to them, listen and give heed. Do not be haughty. The Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God. Though he knows they can't. And he even says they can't. But he tells them they have to. It's very much like the God who says, all men everywhere repent, knowing full well that they're not going to. It's the same God who can say, this is my law. These are my 613 ordinances. You are required to do them, even though he says to Moses, they're not going to. They can't. They're not going to do them. But are they responsible to do them? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
God makes them responsible. God explains it to them and knows they can't. Talk about desperate wickedness when you've got the God who made heaven and earth, the authority of everything, telling you what you got to do. Just do this and you'll have happiness and you'll have joy and you'll have peace in my sight and you won't be judged. And that God speaking to you also knows that you're just so desperately wicked that you're just not going to do it. This, yet again, is a demonstration of the total depravity of human beings. And unless God does something for you, he himself knows that even as he commands you, you can't, and you won't, and you don't. And he knows that. He instructs the people of Israel, do it. Give God glory. And at the same time says, and if you can, that would be like a leopard suddenly changing his spots. And that never happened. It would be like an Ethiopian or any other person changing their skin color. And you can't. Even though we've had a few people attempt to say that they were a different race, they also got called out for it by their own parents and said, no, 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 you're Caucasian, just stop it. Because the Ethiopian can't change his skin, the leopards cannot change their spots, and we who are evil cannot do good. And yet, we are responsible before God to do good. So is he justified in judging? Absolutely. He's completely justified in judging people who he knows won't do what he told them to do, but they had adequate warning. He told them, so they're as guilty as they can be. Even though they didn't do the law and they're going to be judged by the law, they're still the people who had the law. They're still the people who had the revelation of God's expectation of them, even though God knew they wouldn't and couldn't and didn't. And yet they are responsible. That is the great cosmic fairness of God. Though he knows you won't do it and you can't do it, if he never told you to do it, you'd have some basis for saying, well, that's not fair. You never told me. I didn't know. But God told them over and over and over again, through the law, through the prophets, through the oracles, told them over and over again, even though he knew that they were wicked and would not do it. And he knows that all humanity is sinful and depraved and wicked and will not do it. And yet, we have these 66 books of the Bible telling us what we're supposed to be like. There's not an innocent person on the planet who's able to say, you didn't tell us. He told us over and over and over again, and we'll judge accordingly. Fascinating theology in this little chapter. Therefore, because you're going to do evil, therefore I will scatter them like drifting straw to the desert wind. Uh, has anybody ever been in an area of Texas or Oklahoma? Any place that has tumbleweeds? Well, that's what he's describing here. Just weeds blowing in the wind. I'm going to scatter them like drifting straw to the desert wind. And this is your lot the portion that is measured to you 
from me, declares the Lord. This is your lot in life. This this is what I'm going to do. This is what is determined for you. This is what's going to happen to you. There's no way around it. Because it's your fault. Because you have forgotten me and you have trusted in falsehood. Remember the first example he gave. The belt was supposed to cling to God. The people of Judah, the people of Israel collectively were supposed to cling to God. They were supposed to be his people for renown, for praise, for glory, but they wouldn't listen. And so this is your lot. This is your portion that I've measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me. And you have trusted in things that are not true. You have trusted in falsehood. And I listen to people all the time online saying things that are so wrong, so lunatic, and yet there are people who believe it. There are people who believe so many (coughs) falsehoods these days, cling to these falsehoods, and yet will not cling to God with the exact same grip and strength and devotion and dedication. You forgot me and you trusted in falsehood. So I myself have also stripped off your skirts, lifted your skirts over your face so that he's exposing them so that your shame may be seen. As for your adulteries, And your lustful neighing. Horses neigh. People generally don't neigh. People don't, it just doesn't happen. That was my quick impression of a neigh. (laughs) People don't do that because God is likening them to brute beasts. And in their lusts and their desires, their lack of control, they're just like beasts, they're just like animals. You've committed all your adulteries. And as for those adulteries and your lustful neighing, for the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills in the field, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will you remain unclean? And that's the end of that chapter. There is an answer to that question, by the way. How long will you remain unclean? How long will Judah remain unclean? Till they have a redeemer. Jesus came to redeem his people. And they couldn't clean themselves up. And talk about adequate inducement. I mean, if anybody was ever encouraged to change their ways... You're going into exile. You're going to be slaves. You're no longer going to be kings and officers and rich people. You're going to be reduced to rubble. I'm going to destroy you completely. Now shape up. You would think that any smart person would go, you know, we need to change our ways. And instead, they deny God's word. They deny Jeremiah. They deny the prophets. And in fact, to avoid Yahweh punishing them, He says, you're counting on your other gods to help you, to preserve you. And they're no good. So this is your lot. This is what is determined for you. This is going to happen until I myself relent and send a redeemer to help you because you are helpless on your own. 
And we see that time and time again. It is a theological reality that I wish people could get a hold of, that we are helpless on our own. And if we don't have a redeemer, we're in desperate trouble. And we got nothing but judgment to look forward to because we've been warned and warned and warned. So, thank God there's a redeemer. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Thank you, oh, my father. Thank you that God would do for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.